I would just echo Neville's welcome to you this morning, especially if you're a visitor with us or a guest of someone who comes here. Uh, We hope you'll be blessed by your time here with us at the Crescent. We are continuing our series in Luke uh, that we have been uh, approaching over this year and will continue into next year. And so we're starting up again in Luke chapter 7. And if you have a Bible with you or on your phone, perhaps you would open it at Luke chapter 7, and we're going to read from it very shortly. Death is something that happens to other people, isn't it? Or as one American humorist wrote, death is something that happens to others until one day it happens to you. And I don't say that to be humorous. That is often how we think of death, isn't it? We can talk about it, and and we can engage with it, and we can go to funerals, and we can lament the tragedy of it when it happens to someone young. But we still fundamentally in our brains consider it something that happens to other people. It's not something that affects us directly. And there was an article actually in the Guardian newspaper in October in 2019 just about this, about a a neuroscientist who had been doing some research and had shown that our brains are hardwired to hold death in the category of something that happens to other people. It's a bit of a defense mechanism for ourselves. It defends our survival instinct by holding the idea of death as something that affects others and not ourselves. And then just a few months after that article, the world changed. The world changed in ways that we never saw coming. And so many people were traumatized because all of a sudden this idea of something that affects others was pressed in front of them as something that might happen to them. And and might happen to them not at some vague point in the future, but like tomorrow. We were faced with our own mortality. We were faced with the reality of our own death. And we're continuing in Luke 7 this morning. And as we've been going through Luke, we've been following with a light touch David Gooding's outline for the book of Luke. And he brings us in chapter 7 and 8 into a new section. And in this new section, Luke has been gathering some episodes and some teaching that deal with the theme of salvation. We're going to see over the next few weeks the Lord bring people salvation from the physical elements, from the weather, salvation from being socially outcast, salvation from demonic powers, and we're going to see him teach about what salvation is and what it isn't. But this morning, at the start of chapter 7 and at the start of this section, Luke opens with what you might call the big one, salvation from death itself. And I think the reason he does that is there's no better picture for us of the problem of being human than death. It's this thing that we deny will happen to us, and yet it's this thing that subconsciously defines our whole life. If you're a a religious person, you will have some idea of what's going to happen after death, and you will live your life accordingly. But even those here perhaps who are atheists, who don't believe there's anything after we die, that defines how you live your life, doesn't it? This idea that your life is finite, that it will come to an end, defines how you live here and now. And I think we all recognize as well that the idea of death brings the idea of a judgment. Even if you don't believe that there's anything after death, 
You probably recognize that in your own thoughts, as the darkness closes in in your final moments, you will make a judgment on your own life. Was it all worth it? Did I make a difference? Will I be remembered by anyone? And the Bible tells us that not only we or those we leave behind make that judgment on our life, but that death brings us before God who will also make a judgment on our lives. He will look at our lives and He will hold them up against His standard, and He will see if we match up or not. And the Bible makes very clear that that's a standard that every single one of us falls short on. That's because not only as humans do we face physical death, but we experience spiritual death. Spiritually, we are dead as well, dead in our sin, dead in our wrongdoing. So, if there is one thing that as humans we need salvation from, it is death. So, let's come to Luke 7 and read these first two episodes together. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. God will bless his word to us, I trust, this morning. So we have two stories here, um, both of them simple. There's not a lot of moving parts. They're not hard for us to understand. 
And yet, it's amazing what unfolds in these two episodes. First of all, we have the Lord encountering this man, this centurion, a man who was a soldier um, with his place in the, the ranking of the armed forces, uh, with men under him and men who he commanded. And he would not have been a Jewish person. He would have been a Gentile, like most of us, I suspect. Uh, but he had lived or been stationed in Israel, around, surrounded by the Jewish people, and watching them, watching their civil life and watching their religious life, he had clearly seen something that, that appealed to him or that he valued. And we hear that from the testimony of some of the people of the town. This man loves us. He loves our nation. And, and uh, he, he, he loved them to the point where actually he started to do good things for them. He built them a synagogue, which would have been no small expense for him. And he has this servant in his house who he loves dearly. He's valuable to him, but is important to him. And the servant has become gravely ill, sick to the point of death. So he really is at what we would locally say he was at death's door. And so he, he sends this delegation of elders, this, this delegation of probably civil leaders, like the sort of people who today could sign your passport, people who were recognized in society as, as leaders in the town. And he sent them to Jesus to, to make this appeal on his behalf. Please come and heal my servant. Please do it. Now, those people who go, that first delegation, feel that all these good works that he's done are worth mentioning. And so they sort of put a bit of a pitch to the Lord Jesus. They say, you know, you really should do this one. He's a good guy. He loves us. He loves our nation. He's, he's done these kind and generous things for them. That's not necessarily what the centurion thought was worth mentioning. And we see that as the Lord gets closer to the centurion's house. He sends his friends now. And his friends bring this message from the centurion that say, I, I'm not worthy for you even to come into the house, Lord. That's, that's not what I was looking for. I know that you can, you can just say the word and my servant will be healed. So while the, the elders felt the good works were worth mentioning, the centurion just thought his own unworthiness was worth mentioning. And we don't know what the centurion had seen of the Lord Jesus' ministry up to this point. We don't know what he'd heard in terms of his teaching or, or maybe heard in reports of miracles that had been done. But whatever he had heard had been enough to, to garner up this remarkable faith and confidence within him. And the Lord, it's interesting, doesn't pass any comment on building the synagogue and the good works, but he does pass comment on this faith that the centurion has in him. That's what we're going to think about in this section. Interesting as well, isn't it, how the, the centurion is actually physically absent through the whole story, as is the servant. The, the centurion never actually comes onto the stage, as it were. Luke, I think here, highlights that because he's, he's trying to remind his readers who lived at a time when now the Lord Jesus was physically absent that the Lord being distant doesn't limit his ability to act. And that's certainly an idea that the centurion understood as well, isn't it? You don't have to actually come and see him. You just have to say the word. And he had complete confidence in the Lord's willingness to save his servant and he had complete confidence in the Lord's ability to do it as well. As we think in this section and in this sermon about the idea of salvation, 
I often reflect that a lack of the sort of faith that this centurion had is one of the real limiting factors for me personally in evangelism, in sharing my faith with people. Don't make a mistake. I have have every confidence that the Lord can save me, will save me, and he who has begun a good work in me will carry it to completion. I have absolute confidence and faith that he will save me. But often we have that sort of faith for our own salvation, but when it comes to our day-to-day life, it's not as evident in how we behave, is it? As as evangelical Christians, it's easy for us to have this confident, saving faith in the Lord regarding ourselves, but we sort of box it in, and we maybe don't share that same confidence when it comes to the Lord's ability to save others that we might encounter in our lives, and that can limit us in our evangelism, in sharing our faith. There's the old and beloved sermon illustration of the tightrope walker, Charles Blondin, who lived in the 19th century, and he did these incredible feats of tightrope walking, and he he stretched a tightrope across the Niagara Falls, and the crowds came to watch him, and he walked across that tightrope, across the raging Niagara Falls, and got safe to the other side. And then day after day, he would do this, and he would change the act a little bit and make it even more remarkable every time. So one day then, he would ride a bicycle across the tightrope, Another day, he got himself into a sack and got across the tightrope on the sack. Another day, he carried a stove across, making an omelet as he went. And every day, the people came, and they watched him do this. And one day, he arrived with a wheelbarrow, and he said, who thinks I could push a man across the tightrope in the wheelbarrow? Of course you can, they all cried. You, sir, jump in. What holds us back from sharing our faith We can say that we know the Lord will save, but often when it comes to jumping into the wheelbarrow, how we live day to day doesn't quite match up to that, does it? I know I lack that confident faith practically of the centurion. I find myself thinking things like, well, I could share my faith with them, but I really know they just will not ever become a Christian. They're just not going to do it. I could invite them to church, but It might all be a bit cringe. It might not work. Michael's already been putting community week in our heads, and perhaps, like me, you think of something like that, and you think of people you could invite, and you think, I don't know that they're the one for the Lord. So the question has to become for us, how do we nurture the confident faith that the centurion had within ourselves day to day in our lives as Christians? How do we stir that up in ourselves? How do we be consistent as Christians in bringing that confident faith that we have that the Lord will save us into our day-to-day lives as we speak to others, knowing confidently that He will save them as well? So we've said, as we've thought, we don't know what the centurion had heard, but it had given him confidence in two things. He had faith in the Lord's character and he had faith in the Lord's ability. And each of us need to understand the character of the Lord Jesus, and that's something we're going to think about in a little bit as we come to the widow of Nain. But the main thing that this passage highlights for us is that the centurion had faith in the Lord's authority. Ultimately, his faith in the Lord's ability to act 
to do this. He, he uses this analogy. He says, I, I understand authority perfectly well. I'm a soldier. I'm an officer. I say to one soldier, go there, and he goes. I say to another soldier, come here, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does that. They, my, my unit, my, my world exists under my umbrella of authority, and, and I don't have to do anything more than just say, and because it's under my authority, it happens. Perhaps if you're someone who employs people today, you understand that as well. You say to your employees, do this, or I don't want you to do that, or I want us to prioritize this this month, and they do it because those people are under the umbrella of your authority. I would love to say as a parent, your children are under your authority. They are, but at that point, I think every parent here would say, this guy's lost all credibility. I would love to say to my children, go there and do that, and they would go there and do that. Sadly not. But this centurion understood that. He understood this idea of authority. And so we see, really, he, he, he lets us see how he views the whole world. He says, this whole natural world, everything we see here, life, death, sickness, everything in between, it's under your authority, Jesus. All you have to do is say the word, and it will happen. Sometimes we forget that we live in a world that is under authority today, don't we? It's very easy for us to get caught up in worrying about the culture wars, as they were called as I was growing up, about the sort of groundless morality of the Western world that we face and encounter in television and in media and on social media. We lament maybe the decline in the role of organized religion in our society. We come across stories of people who've deconverted. And it's very easy when we hear and encounter that worldview and we talk about it and we dwell on it to think that our job is just to really stand still and keep the lights on. That's all we've got to do. It's easy for us to see ourselves as soldiers sort of pinned down in the trenches, pinned down in our foxhole. And the enemy fire is flying overhead and we can't put our head above the parapet because we might get shot. And so when it comes to this idea of sharing our faith with people, we keep our heads down. And yet if we were going to paint ourselves as soldiers, we forget that the the role of a soldier is not just to stay hidden and not get shot. The role of a soldier is to engage in the battle. And we forget that the battle that we engage in has already been won. The Lord has won the victory here. The Lord didn't look out at the fields of, of grain and say to His disciples, there's a few small grains in there in the middle of that field of, of, of nettles and briars. Try not to get yourself stung. Try not to get yourself scratched up and just make it through to the other side. The Lord said, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. The issue with evangelism and sharing our faith is not the harvest. It's the shortage of workers. And we forget, I think, sometimes as we face the changing culture and the changing political climate and the changing religious and moral makeup of our world, that salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They will not prevail. The Lord will build His church, 
And I think sometimes the Lord needs to shake us up a little bit and remind us of that. And I speak really to myself there. I need to be challenged by this confident faith that the centurion had, that the Lord can act, wants to act, and will act. I think we need to appropriate that for ourselves in our lives sometime. We need to have faith that the Lord will work, and we need to allow that faith to encourage us and embolden us to go and share our faith with others. Let's try and bring our confidence that the Lord will save us into our day-to-day lives as we meet family and friends and neighbors. The centurion understood that that this was all within the Lord's ability. This was all within his ability. But he also understood his character as well. I could go to someone like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or even the Chancellor of the Exchequer if you read the Rich List last week, and I could ask them to buy me a supercar or a plane or some wonderful and ornate gift, and it would be so easy for them. It would be not even pocket change for them. But of course, it would never occur to me to go and ask them that because I know the answer would be no. The centurion asked because he understood that the Lord would say yes. He understood that the Lord would want to help. He understood the character of the Lord Jesus. And that brings us to the second story in our passage this morning, where we see that character of the Lord Jesus more clearly. There are times in our lives, I think, when we, cr- we, we come across circumstances where, it, humanly speaking, all you can say is it seems that someone has had more than their fair share, more than their fair share of grief or of hardship. And that is exactly the sort of situation that we encounter here now, starting at, at verse 11. We find a, a woman who has been bereaved, a mother has been bereaved by the loss of her only son, something so unthinkable for, for any parent. And yet, that grief sits in the background of a woman who has already buried her husband. She lost her husband, and now she has lost her only son. And not only is the grief of that so overwhelming, we would struggle to imagine it, but in the world at that time, the loss of her husband and the loss of her son also left her in a very precarious position socially. In that world at that time, a woman's place and and security was often, if not always, linked to a male figure in her life, and she had lost these two. So let's read this again, and I want you to do something for me. As we start reading at verse 11, reverently, I want you to think and follow the Lord's emotional journey as we go through this episode, because we're told very explicitly what He's feeling. So as we read it, follow the Lord's emotional journey as this scene unfolds in front of us. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still and he said, 
young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. Amen. It's also, if you have time this afternoon, worth reading that and thinking what the emotional journey of the woman would have been there, or the emotional journey of the crowd would have been. But I want us to think about the emotions that we see the Lord experiencing here. When we see this again, a very simple and linear episode unfolding so dramatically in front of us, you've got this picture of these two crowds, don't you? We've got the Lord Jesus with the great, we're told, a great crowd coming with Him, coming towards the town. And then out of the town, we see this other crowd of mourners coming. And at the head of that crowd, we've got the body of this young man being carried as it would have in those days on a plank or on a board wrapped in cloth. And as these two crowds come together, at the head of both of them, we see the Lord of life encountering death in its, its rawest and most brutal form. And these two meet in the middle. And the Lord, when He sees that woman and He sees her grief, is feeling compassion for her. The Lord touches the woman, or speaks to the woman, sorry, and says, stop crying. And then He reaches out and He touches the procession. And it's hard to imagine just what exactly was going through the heads of the people at that stage. What on earth is happening here? What does he mean saying, stop crying? This woman will never stop crying. And then he says, just simply, young man, get up. Get up, young man, I say to you, arise. The ease of that command from the Lord. This isn't like some Hollywood production where there's flashing lights and great straining and a huge effort and bangs and everything else. The Lord simply says, up. And the young man sits up and starts talking. There's no ambiguity here. He's up and alive. And that reminds us again of things that fall under the authority of the Lord Jesus. This was so easy for him. It was just like saying, come. And up he came. And just like the centurion doesn't appear in the last story to, to highlight a point to us, I think the woman, you'll notice, doesn't say anything in this story. She's completely silent. And I think that's to highlight a point to us as well. She had nothing to say, really. She had nothing to, to barter with to try and persuade Jesus to do this wonderful thing for her. In fact, based on what we read, she didn't even ask him to do it. It was a completely unprompted, unasked for gift from the Lord, from his heart that was just overflowing with compassion for this woman. He comes and he graciously does this wonderful thing for her. And I know that we don't always grasp the compassion of the Lord Jesus. I know that we don't always appreciate that. Nancy was challenging some of us on Friday about how we can assume that when something bad happens in our lives, it's, it's God punishing us. And I know people whose worldview is really that God has given them so many good things that He must be saving up something really bad for them to balance up the scales. Like He's looking down at me and saying, well, there's Nicholas, and I've given him a, a wonderful wife and children and his health and a job, so now I've got a real banger saved up for him. 
Some of us, maybe it's more personal even than that. Maybe you think that God sort of lured us all in with this salvation by grace and kindness, but now that we're sort of in the fold, he's thinking, well, now I'm going to get her for those things she did when she was a student. Now I'm going to even up the scores. And that is just not how God works. That is not the compassionate heart of the Lord Jesus that we see here. Thinking like that creeps into our lives because we haven't fully understood and appreciated the compassion of the Lord Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we get ourselves to appreciate that day to day in our lives? How as Christians can we live that and appreciate that and see that? So I think there's four things that are helpful for us to do that I just want to share with you. I think, first of all, it's useful for us to refresh ourselves by encountering Jesus in the Gospels. I know that when I haven't encountered the Lord in the Gospel accounts for a while, my image of His wonderfulness starts to get a bit cloudy. That's not prioritizing one part of Scripture over other. The Old Testament and the epistles teach us of the, the glory of God and the plan of God, but encountering the person of Jesus Encountering the person of Jesus is done in the Gospels primarily when we see Him living and acting and interacting with other people. And so we need to refresh ourselves by encountering Jesus in the Gospels. And we know it's the prayer of the ministry team and of the elders that as we work through Luke over this year and next year, that that is something that would happen to us as a church, that we would encounter Jesus and see Him and be refreshed in our vision of Him. So we refresh ourselves by encountering Him in the Gospels. I think it's important as we read the Bible as well that we recognize the emotional life of the Lord Jesus when it happens. It's very easy in our tradition to prize narrative comprehension over emotional engagement. The two are not mutually exclusive. Though it's very easy for us to fall into that. We can understand what is happening, but don't miss the emotional reality of it. These were real people, real humans with real feelings, and the Lord Himself is not in some way less human than us and, and more austere and less feeling. The Lord, if anything, would be more human than us because He was a perfect man. So as you read the Gospels, recognize the emotions that the Lord feels when He takes pity when he feels sorry, when he feels joy, when he feels anger, recognize the emotional life of the Lord Jesus and reflect on that. Let that help you understand who he is, what he values, what he cares about, what sort of a person he is. To refresh ourselves by encountering him in the Gospels, recognizing the emotional life of the Lord when it happens, and remembering that this same Jesus is the Jesus in our lives today. That's what the angels in Acts say, isn't it? As the, as the Lord ascends to heaven and the disciples are all standing, looking up, and the angels appear and they say, why are you standing looking up at the sky? This same Jesus who you've just seen ascend is one day coming back. And the point is this, he's not gonna change from when he left and when he's coming back. He is that same Jesus who met the widow who is in heaven today and coming again. This same Jesus who looked with compassion on this funeral procession is looking with compassion as you, perhaps as you're sitting here this morning, 
torn up about a child, about a son or a daughter whose life is not unfolding as you would wish. This same Jesus is looking at you as you sit here, perhaps waiting on that biopsy result, keeping you awake at night. This same Jesus is looking at you with compassion as you sit there struggling with your self-esteem or with your mood or with chronic pain or with a disability that no one knows about or whatever it is. This same Jesus looks with that compassion on you today. So we refresh ourselves by encountering him in the Gospels. We recognize the emotional life of the Lord when we see it. We remember that this same Jesus is in our life today. And I think finally we complete the circle by responding to that in prayer. We say, Lord, I recognize that you love me. I recognize that you care for me as I'm going through this difficult time. Would you help me? So as we conclude this morning, we have to come back to where we started. Death something that happens to other people. We've thought about these two moments when Jesus brings salvation from death, and we've hopefully thought about how they challenge and encourage us. But now we need to think about that big idea that Luke is trying to paint here for us, this idea of salvation. What have we learned about it? First of all, we've learned that it wasn't the centurion's good works that the Lord responded to. It wasn't the synagogue, but it was his faith in him. That's what opened the door to salvation here. So we learn that salvation here, Luke's saying, comes not through works, but through faith. And then in our second episode here, we see that this salvation that comes to this widow came as an act of totally unprompted, unasked for generosity from God. The Lord just acts out of love that Christian idea of what we call grace, when God gives us something that we don't deserve because He loves us. So, Luke is telling us, as we face salvation from death, physical death, but also as we're going to see spiritual death, it is by grace we are saved through faith, just as Neville was reading for us as we were starting. Because that idea is not one that's just confined here in Luke, but that is how the Bible talks about salvation throughout the whole span of redemptive history. By God's grace, you and I are saved through faith, not of works, in case any of us could boast. It is a gift from God. And that salvation that God offers as a gift is not just from physical death, but it is from spiritual death again. We are, that's why Christians talk about being born again. That spiritual death is gone and we are made alive in Jesus. And so whenever our, our life on earth dies and the reckoning happens, the Lord steps forward and says, any shortcomings, any wrongdoings, any sin in this guy's life, I've paid the price for that. I have lifted him off the funeral procession and into life. Our salvation comes not because we built a synagogue or gave a lot to church or came to church every Sunday, but because we encountered the person of Jesus Christ who was born as a man and lived here, who was crucified for our wrongdoing and took the punishment that we deserve and was raised again to life himself. And seeing each of us like the centurion 
have nothing really to offer. We're not worthy of this, but we understood His character. We understood that He loved us. We understood that He can save us, and so we said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And perhaps you're encountering the person of Jesus for the first time this morning, or perhaps you're a little way along that journey. You've been coming to church for a while, or maybe you've been reading some of the gospel accounts, and you've been starting to encounter the person of Jesus Christ. You too should continue to read in Luke and read the gospels. You too should continue to encounter him and look at who he was. But don't miss the claim that he makes on your life. You need him. You need him to save you. You need him to be the Lord of your life. And so I would encourage you, like the centurion, seeing and savoring the Lord Jesus, respond in faith and say, Lord, just say the word and you will save me. As we close, I want to read some of Paul's thoughts on the Lord Jesus and death from Corinthians. Then we'll pray, and then the band will lead us in our final song. Paul says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so all in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Or perhaps God has put all things, we might say, under his authority. Lord, we thank you for these moments from your ministry on earth that we have had time to dwell in this morning. We thank you for what they teach us about salvation, about the need that each of us feels for our life to be more than just what happens before that final full stop of death. Pray that you would stir up in each of us an awareness like you did in that centurion that we're not really worthy of you to come calling to our house but help us to respond in faith to your character and your ability to save us. Lord, I would really pray that you would stir up in someone's heart this morning that. For those of us who know and love you, we pray that we would carry that same faith and confidence in you into our life, into our witness and evangelism as we share the good news of your gospel with those around us. We know, Lord, that they will not all become Christians. We know that we will be knocked back. We know that times may be hard. I pray that you would always remind us that the battle has already been won, that the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, and that salvation belongs to you. In your name, amen.